Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Coming to you from Great American Ballpark, it's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Better Off Red Podcast. We're going to dedicate this episode to longtime Reds clubhouse man, Bernie Stowe, who passed away earlier this week at the age of 80. Bernie spent nearly 70 years in the Reds organization and touched the lives of so many generations of Reds players and fans alike. This one's for Bernie. Our guest today is former Reds pitcher Jack Billingham, but before we get to him, I want to introduce you to an indie rock band from Madrid, Spain that I've been spending a lot of time listening to called The Hinds. They've graciously agreed to provide today's podcast music from their new album, Leave Me Alone, which is available now on iTunes. This is Heinz with the song Garden. Our guest today pitched in parts of 13 big league seasons, including six years in Cincinnati as a member of the famed Big Red Machine. In 1973, he started 40 games, pitched 293 and a third innings, collected 19 wins, and finished with a 3.04 ERA while earning his only All-Star Game selection. Over seven World Series games with the Reds, he allowed just one earned run over 25 and a third innings. He was part of one of the most notable trades in baseball history when in November of 1971, 
He was acquired by the Reds from the Astros along with Cesar Geronimo, Dennis Menke, Ed Armbrister, and a fella named Joe Morgan in exchange for Lee May, Tommy Helms, and Jimmy Stewart. This is Cactus Jack Billingham. Hello, Jack Billingham. Welcome to the Better Off Red podcast. I'm so thrilled for you to uh, to agree to come on with us, and I, I really appreciate it. No problem. It's bright and early down here in Florida, and sun shines out, and uh, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You're a you're a Florida boy, aren't you? Through and through. Well, I was born and raised right outside of Orlando, a little town called Winter Park. But I retired ten years ago and moved over to New Smyrna Beach, and uh, it's just south of Daytona. My daughter lives over here, and I got two grandsons that live over here, and. Uh, that's just about my life right right now, following my grandkids around. <laughs> of course, that's what a grandparent's supposed to do, right? Exactly, exactly. You mentioned uh, uh, growing up in Florida. You played Little League Baseball with future Reds manager Davey Johnson. Isn't that right? Yes, we did. Uh, I always tell him I hit more home runs the last year of <laughs> Little League than he did. But he left halfway through the season. That's the only reason I won that that home run hitting contest. So no, Davey and I grew up together. Uh, you know, playing sports and playing baseball, and uh, he had a great, great career. Sure did. Do you still maintain ties with him? I run into him every once in a while. He still lives over in Winter Park area. Uh, last time I ran into him, uh, they were he was opening up the little league program, which we both played in, and. Uh, I went over there with my granddaughter to play softball in that program, or used to play mm-hmm. softball in that program. But uh, we have mutual friends that we run into periodically, and they say, Davey said to say hello, and this and that. But, uh, about an hour away from Winter Park, and like I say, I don't get out. We get to do quite a few things, but uh, our life is mostly around our family right now. Sure. And, you know, speaking of family, the Reds just recently – are, we're informed that that Bernie Stowe, longtime clubhouse man, is had passed away this week. Uh, I know you were obviously you were tight with Bernie because you know you were in that clubhouse for six years. And can you tell us a little bit about what Bernie meant to not only to the Reds but to you personally? Personally, Bernie and I became friends. Uh, you know, when I first joined uh, the Reds in spring training in '72. And I got to know him real well. I talked to him a lot. I was coming up to Cincinnati, didn't know anything about the town. And and Bernie, being a native of Cincinnati, uh, and where he lived over in the Western Hills area, he recommended that my wife and I go over there. There was an apartment complex over there that rented to people part-time. So we moved over there, and uh, we had a great time in that part of town. the funny part is that Bernie lived over there by us, and uh, we got in the World Series, gave him a full World Series here in 72, and he moved out of the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> but Bernie, Bernie was a special type of guy. He was your classic clubhouse man, uh, clubhouse manager or whatever. He was actually part of the Big Red Machine. You know, mm-hmm. He traveled with us. He was there before we got to the ballpark. He was there when we left the ballpark. Uh, he never had an argument or uh, with anybody. He always was 
pleasant. Uh, you needed something, Bernie was always there to find out how to get it. Uh, if you couldn't get it, he would find out how to get it. Uh, after a good game, he was the same as after a bad game when you came up to clubhouse. He always called me John. My name is John. My nickname is Jack. Hello, John. How are you doing? Hello, John. You know, good game, good game. Or you you know, just hang with him, John. Get him next time. You know, you'd always <laughs> yeah. with a smile on his face. So if you had a bad game and he came up there and Bernie was in the clubhouse, uh, he just made you smile. He made you forget something, like you had a bad day. But uh, there's two people that I think that uh, can never be replaced in the history of Cincinnati Reds. And that is Joe Nuxall, as everybody knows, and Bernie mm-hmm. Stowe. I mean, those are fabulous Cincinnati Reds people who were born and raised in that area. Yeah, and we, we kind of spoke about it a little bit yesterday off the air about how Joe and Bernie also had like a special relationship. And they were not only, like you said, two of irreplaceable figures in Cincinnati Reds history, but they were best of friends. And, you know, I, I, you saw that firsthand. And I, I'm pretty sure wherever they are now, and we talked about it yesterday, they're probably sitting at a table trading insults and talking about old Reds players. And they're sitting there having a beer and uh, <laughs> laughing and remembering the good times and funny times. And uh, they were just two super, super individuals. Uh, I just loved, you know, talking about the clubhouse and Bernie. The day I pitched, I'd always go out and have batting practice and come and sit in the clubhouse. And Joe and I would just sit there and I'd listen to him telling old stories or just stories about ball players and laughing and uh you know that can never be replaced that clubhouse can never be the same even though bernie's kids are running you know uh, mm-hmm. rick's running the home clubhouse and mark the visiting clubhouse uh it, it is it's not the same it's never going to be the same right right well uh, we'll move on to a little bit of a happier subject uh not the you know, Bernie wasn't because he was probably one of the funniest guys that I've ever known, as as you probably can attest to. But you were, um, is it true that you're a distant cousin to Christy Mathewson? Well, uh, my grandmother always told me that. Don't, yeah. don't ask me how I am. <laughs> uh, she always told me that, and I mentioned that years and years ago when I was coming up in the minor leagues, and boom, uh, it showed up on a Topps bubblegum <laughs> card, and I get asked that all the time. But uh, yeah. he was, my dad was from New York. My grandmother was from New York. He was up uh, around Monticello, New York. Uh, and it was a, a grandmother's sister, somebody, somebody, somebody. I, I, don't, I really mm-hmm. don't know, but my grandmother <laughs> was so proud of it that yeah, Christy well. Matheson was in the family, and she actually had given me some newspaper articles when I was in high school. But as a normal high school kid, I have no idea. They're probably they're in the <laughs> trash somewhere. I, I lit them to start a fire somewhere. <laughs> you know. Well, if your grandmother says it's so, then it's got to be so. You always listen to your grandmother, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go. Let's kind of dive into a little bit to how you 
became a Major League Baseball player. You were drafted and signed by the Dodgers in 1961. You spent seven years in the system, the Dodgers system, before making your Major League debut. And, you know, a lot of people, they think, seven years in the minor leagues. How old was he when he made his Major League debut? You were only 25 in 1968 when you came up. That's a testament to, you know, how the model of baseball, I guess, you draft and get these guys in young and then, you know, savor their savor a player's peak years and that's when you came up at the age of 25 uh as a member of the los angeles dodgers what was that like pitching for the dodgers in your major league debut uh unbelievable you know to me and i and i say this uh, the dodgers used to be one of the best organizations in baseball and they still are a good organization but uh, when i came up you know we had uh drysdale was still playing walter austin was the manager I spent seven years in the minor leagues, and uh, if anybody's ever been down to Vero Beach in Dodger Town, you know, uh, we all went to spring training together. We all more or less uh, got on the field together. If the major league, when you were in the minor leagues, the major league needed batting practice pitcher or something other, you always were called over there, you know, to pitch against the, the Maury Wills, uh, Frank Howard, those guys. Uh, mm. Uh, it was just a class organization, and they were known for pitching. And uh, I spent seven years in the minor leagues. I think possibly I might have been able to, in another organization, be able to come up a year or two earlier. But uh, when it was all said and done, I felt like when I did get to the big leagues, I was prepared and I was ready to pitch in the big leagues. Uh, I was actually brought up with the Dodgers. Uh, they groomed me mainly as a reliever mm -hmm. and uh, I came up with them in 68 uh, and uh, it was just great you know Dodger Stadium I've never been in anything like that <laughs> you stand out on the mound and you're surrounded by stands and out the outfield mountains or hills and over the stands uh, it was just beautiful you know it was one of the and still probably is one of the prettiest ballparks because all they do mm -hmm. there is play baseball. Yeah. You know, uh, most yeah. of the other ballparks, they played football and they have events and this and that. But uh, it, it was just absolutely. And when you spend seven years in the minor leagues and the general manager <laughs> tells you uh, you can look for an apartment, it's quite a thrill. Wow. I bet it is. At some point when you were a, a Dodgers farmhand, isn't it true that you contemplated quitting because – you weren't making a whole lot of money at that level, and you were going to get married, and you thought this isn't going to work out? Well, uh, I'd played for three years, and back then they called it. We had D-ball, C-ball, A-ball, double-A, triple-A. Now mm -hmm. they, have, they just changed it. They have A-leagues, but they have low-A a leagues, middle-A leagues, and high-A yeah. leagues. So mm -hmm. they, I don't know who the genius was that thought of that, but... Uh, <laughs> I played in D-ball for three or D-ball for two years. They sent me to C in Santa Barbara, California, and I think I was making three hundred and fifty dollars a month after playing mm. three years. And uh, everybody on the team was living was from California. Yeah. There was only about four of us weren't, and we had Mondays off. And uh, I didn't have a car, didn't have transportation. Uh, I was engaged to be married, uh, and it just wasn't working out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started thinking, you know, uh, 
I knew how to work for a living. Unfortunately, I signed right out of high school. My dad had a standard oil gas station I was raised in, and I knew I could always go back there and take over the gas station, work hard. And I called Fresco Thompson out, who was the farm director, and I said, look, mm-hmm. uh, this isn't working. And uh, I said, uh, I need more money, and you need to send me to St. Petersburg, Florida, where I'd be closer to home. And what and level was that? What what, what level was St. Pete? Uh, that was D-ball, back to okay. D-ball. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't pitching in Santa Barbara. I was just wasting my time. So about two weeks later, the manager walked up to me, and he says, I got bad news. And I said, uh, uh-oh, I'm going to get released. They're going to send me home. And he says, we're sending you to St. Pete, and they want to tell me they're going to give you a $50 raise. <laughs> which I went, Yeah. <laughs> great and he says what and i said great that's what i want and uh so i went down there played for a guy by the name of roy hartsfield mm-hmm. he pulled me in his office and he said jack i want to make you the stopper of this team you got some experience and from then on it was like uh i was in st pete went to winter ball in nicaragua got married took my lovely bride to nicaragua on our honeymoon <laughs> and uh I played with him the next two years in double A AA and triple A and you know, when you have somebody that really believes in you and talks to you and helps you, that made all the difference in the world. And getting married I had a little bit more responsibility mm-hmm. and, and it just worked out. I think I was very fortunate. And that was great for the Dodgers to do that for you. Yes, yes. And Fresco Thompson wasn't known to be nice to people. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, but how I was Nicaragua? Like, Nicaragua was quite an experience, you know. Yeah. When you're when you're 21 years old and your bride is 19 years old, and <laughs> uh, she's never been away from her mother, and I marry her and take her down there for three months. And we, <laughs> we live in a town where not in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. no hot water, uh, the hotel. I don't know. It was didn't have screens on the windows. And oh boy! Beds were about two inches. The mattresses were about two inches. They were like old army barrack mattresses, oh, wow. and uh, it was a great experience. When we look back on it, and we both say we'd love to go back down there, yeah, and just see see what it is like. Uh, did, beautiful, did, beautiful country. The people were nice. The baseball was very good. Mm-hmm. It, it built my confidence up because I came out of D ball and. When you go to winter ball, it's at least double-A, triple-A, big-league ball players playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had success down there after coming out of D-ball. So that was kind of boosting my morale and uh, helped me with the future of my career. Yeah. And, and the you said the baseball was good. How are the crowds? Did they get behind baseball in Nicaragua? They're crazy. They gamble. <laughs> they fight. They like late newspapers now we're talking about in the 60s i don't yeah Mm -hmm. they they would light newspapers and throw them on the field and actually (laughs) uh the the iguanas they would throw them out on the field oh my uh they'd run around Uh, they weren't very nice to them they'd like uh, sew their mouths shut and they couldn't get enough oxygen through their nose and they'd be going crazy out on the field oh my I had a couple of players chase me around the practice field a few times. With oh my goodness! They, they don't look good. They, they don't. They don't look good, but they're not. You know, they're not poisonous, and they're not right. going to attack you. 
Sure. But uh, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned your father was a uh, he owned a gas station, and one of your off season jobs to make some money is you drove fuel trucks in the off season. Is that correct? Where'd you get all this information out? Hey, I, I, I know all about you, Jack. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, I was one of the best fuel oil truck drivers in, in town. I could uh, I could pump a lot of fuel when the cold. When you're in Florida mm-hmm. and you're pumping fuel oil, you don't get the opportunity to make a whole lot of money. But uh, sure. like right now, it's been cold. Last night I went to a ball game. It was in the 40s. Uh, but... Uh, when you when it gets cold, they pay you by the gallon, not by the hour. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty good, and that kept me in shape. If you've ever pulled a fuel oil hose through backyards in 55-gallon tanks in Florida in the middle of the winter up mm. practically until 1, 2 o'clock in the morning because everybody needs the fuel oil. They don't sure. wait until the last minute to order it. Uh, <laughs> that... Uh, that kept me in shape. You throw the hose over your shoulder and start running away from the truck. And uh, I learned real, real quick how to put the hose back in the truck with my foot and not my hand. Because <laughs> if you're running through yards with a hose, uh, you don't know what you're going to pick up in the yard. <laughs> if you got your hand on it when you're running the hose back into the truck, you can find out that <laughs> there's a dog that lives in the yard <laughs> by looking in your hand. All right, yeah. yeah. So you from from Houston, you were taken by Montreal in the nineteen sixty eight expansion draft, but from the Dodgers, from the Dodgers. I'm sorry, from the Dodgers, yeah. From the Dodgers, yeah. you were taken by Montreal. But then you were sent to Houston as compensation for a trade in which the Expos acquired Rusty Staub for Don Clendenin. And, and because Jesus Alou. Jesus and Jesus Alou. That's correct. Yeah. But because Clendenin didn't report to the Astros, Commissioner Bowie Kuhn ordered the Expos to send cash and a couple of players instead, and you were one of those players. Right. Myself, Cash, and a kid by the name of Skip Gwynn, a little left-handed pitcher. So this kind of sets up that Don Clendenin kind of sets up your arrival eventually to the Reds in a roundabout way. Well, that worked perfect in a lot of ways, and it worked perfect as far as my life and my daughter are concerned because my wife mm-hmm. was pregnant all during this time where I went spring training with the Expos, and uh, three days before the season started, they traded me, or they sent me in compensation for Don Clendon in Houston, mm-hmm. and uh, it was kind of a funny but sad story. My brother had was on a leave just before he went to Vietnam, and uh, he has to drive my car from Florida to Montreal. Uh, and he gets up in northern New York. He's got a half a day to get into Montreal. He turns the TV on, and it says Billingham traded to Houston. <laughs> so, so he had to turn around and drive all the way back to Houston. What kind and of car he, was it, do you remember? It was a Chevy station wagon. Uh, it was a decent car. It was yeah, a decent yeah. car, family car. Uh, but he came to, you know, he, his last six days before he went over Vietnam, it was almost like he was on the highway. Uh, <laughs> but Houston treated him very well when he got to Houston. I told uh, Speck Richardson the story. 
and uh, he put him up in a hotel for a day and then flew him home and uh, really took care of him. Really oh, that's took care good. Of him. Yeah. But, uh, no, I came to Houston uh, as a reliever in that it was just Coppinson for Don Clendenin, who actually was the MVP, I think, of uh, <laughs> the World Series that year mm-hmm. with the Mets. Ended up with the Mets that year. But the other thing was my wife was pregnant, and we went to Houston, and my daughter was born at at uh, six months. She was three months premature. Mm. And if we, I just felt because we were in Houston and the medical doctors and the medical hospitals there in Houston, uh, she is now a healthy 48-year-old beautiful woman. And uh, when you have a child that was born and weighed right around two pounds and possibly less. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And at that time, she was in a hospital for 76 days. And mm. I don't know, it just turned out good, you know, going yeah. to Houston. And, and, oh. and uh, I came there as a reliever, got an opportunity to start about after a year there, and I stayed a starter the rest of my career. Yeah, I saw where you mentioned that you enjoyed pitching in that ballpark. You, you at that time, that was the Astrodome, and you liked pitching there, right? I loved it. I loved it. You know, everybody said, "Why do you want to go to the Astrodome?" I was a sinker ball pitcher, which means you're going to get more ground balls. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, "You know, it's got astroturf. That ball is going to shoot through there." Well, the astroturf infielders played back farther. The ball did get to them quicker, but there was no bad hops. You mm-hmm. know. Every day when I went to the ballpark, and I can't remember when the game started, say 7.30 or 7.10, you knew the game was going to start. There was no rain delays. Yeah. Temperature was the same. Every day mm-hmm. you went to the ballpark. And one of the biggest things was it was a big ballpark. <laughs> so <laughs> you could get away with shot. It took yeah. a big shot uh, yeah. to get it out of the ballpark. So. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Houston. We almost bought a house in Houston, but uh, when we were looking for homes, we decided to come home to Florida, and it was a good thing we did. Uh, we were there <laughs> three years because uh, you're really thinking about buying a home. I thought I'd yeah. established myself there. That's the year uh, you get traded, and that's the year I did get traded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were 29 years old. You came over in one of arguably one of the biggest trades in baseball history. You came over with Dennis Menke, um, Cesar Geronimo, and Ed Armbrister, and the one and only Joe Morgan from yeah, the Astros. Joe Morgan was a Joe Morgan was the throw-in. <laughs> he was the throw-in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was saving him for last on that one. Yeah. Um, you came over for uh, Tommy Helms, Jimmy Stewart, and our mutual friend Lee May. And w- Mo, can you big Mo, Mo, big, big Mo? <laughs> big can yeah, you tell me was... what? Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what you, what your feelings were like and what your thoughts were when you, you were told that you were getting traded with several of your teammates and you were going to Cincinnati. Well, I'd, I'd gone out that winter to have some surgery on my leg. I had varicose veins in the case stripped them uh, after the 71 season. And uh, we were a pretty good ball club. Uh, we were coming up. We had John Mayberry, Cesar Geronimo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, actually, 
Caesar Geronimo wasn't part of the team. Caesar Cedeno, I meant to say. Bob Watson, Jimmy Wynn, Joe Morgan. You know, we had a pretty good ball club. Mm-hmm. We had Don Wilson, Berker. We had some good starters. And uh, Minky and I, Minky lived there, and when I was out there with surgery, he came. We were talking about how we felt that the team was on a move. And then, the, actually, the team doctor who uh, came in to see me at the hospital a few times. He says, I was up in Speck Richardson's office, who was the general manager, and your name was mentioned quite a few times in trades. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, my gosh. You know? <laughs> so I home, and uh, they called me, told me I was traded to the Reds, and I'm going, okay, that's good. And then a few minutes later, Sparky called me and welcomed me and he said uh, one of my coaches, George Sugar who I played with in the Dodger system in Salisbury, North Carolina he says you're a competitor and he says I'm looking forward to having you on the get a haircut before you show up for spring <laughs> driving <laughs> so you know uh, Shooks and I uh, and we were talking about that's funny you say this I was talking about Shugs last night my grandson and uh, Shugs was probably the toughest manager in the minor leagues uh, you'd hear these stories but they were true we'd lose a ball game and we'd come back up to the, our home field and the lights would be on and we'd wonder why are the lights on <clears throat> and it'd be like 11 o'clock at night and Shugs would say alright put your workout stuff on we're going to go work out we'd work out until <laughs> 1, 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> Oh, my and then, goodness. And then the next day, he says, I'll see you at 10. And, <laughs> and uh, we'd get there at 10. And uh, he'd work us out. He'd run He'd run while the pitchers. There was one guy that I guess he enjoyed beer or something or another. But there was one <laughs> pitcher on the team that uh, after he ran quite a bit, he would get sick. So we'd run until he got sick. <laughs> oh, my And then gosh. George would say, okay, go shower up. You know, so <laughs> he was tough, but after yeah. every win, he'd say, nice going, you baby Dodgers. And after the season, you look back and you say, this guy worked our butts off, but I got mm-hmm. to be better because, you know. So we were just talking about that last night, but he was so, a great man. And uh, when you came over, when you came over in that trade and you knew George Sugar was uh, Sparky's bench coach, did that kind of, you know, put a smile on your face knowing that you were going to be reunited with him? Yes, yes. And I had seen him the year before. Uh, I was playing with Houston, and he was working, I think, in the minor leagues with Cincinnati at that time. And uh, he made a point. I was standing in the left field, and he made a point come over and uh, at the old stadium, Crosley. Mm-hmm. Jack, Jack, Jack. You know, and I look up, and there's old Shugs, and I hadn't seen him for years. Uh, but uh, he just came over to say hello, and then the next year, I'm sitting next to him in the dugout, which was kind of <laughs> cool. Yeah. Kind of cool. Yeah, he was he was a very smart baseball person. People didn't know that. You know, he was Pete's bench coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's a story. I, I don't know if you've heard it, but I know this is true that uh, Shugs was Sparky's kind of uh, – Sparky was a rookie. Shugs played a couple of years in the Dodgers system. Mm-hmm. And I think Sparky was a second baseman. Shugs was a shortstop. But Shugs kind of took care of Sparky when he was a rookie. Mm-hmm. And then they both started managing the minor leagues. And Sparky said, 
if I ever get to the big league, you're going to be one of my coaches. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Suge was a lifelong Northern League manager. Sparky got the job, and he called Suge up, and he says, you want a job in the big leagues? <laughs> you know, and uh, kept his so word. he stuck with his word. He kept yeah. his word. Yeah. He did that in Detroit and uh, for a coach that was actually played in the minor leagues, friend of Sparky's. He was a barber out there in California, <laughs> cut Sparky's hair. And uh, Sparky got the job in Detroit. Called him up, and he said, did you want a job? And uh, I can't think of the guy's name. Uh, but anyway, he, sp- he stayed 10 years with Sparky over in Detroit, or however, how long Sparky stayed. Played it, was, it wasn't Alex Gramis, was it? No, Alex, you know, he spent 20 years with Sparky. Okay, okay, yeah. No, it was... Uh, and we were just talking about him because I did the fantasy camp for Detroit about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Everybody loved him. Uh, this guy was <laughs> super nice guy, super nice guy. Uh, but, uh, Sparky did things like that that people don't know about. He, mm-hmm. Sparky and I had our differences off the field. We became real good friends. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because he was known as Captain Hook and I think you prided yourself, especially during that era, as being a guy. Once you once you get into the game, you're expected to pitch all nine innings. So that had to kind of clash with your ideology as far as what you were supposed to do, right? Well, you know, I, I'm a pitcher. My job is to go out there and go nine innings. I figured, mm-hmm. uh, and Sparky, and he had the bullpen for it, but I'm out there and. Uh, all of a sudden, this little white-haired guy comes walking out there. <laughs> it doesn't make you very happy when you right. think you can still do it and you know how to get the next guy out. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sparky had a rule. He says, uh, when I come running out there, I'm going to tell you something. Or I'm going to talk to Johnny. That's what it was all about. He never talked to us much on the mound. He talked to Johnny. Uh, mm-hmm. But he ran out there, and he was either giving guy in the bullpen went to warm up or whatever he says but when i'm start walking out there your game stand on the mound and hand me the ball he says i won't show you up and you don't show me up and and that's the way it was and he didn't you know he came out and took you out of the ball game but Mm -hmm. i still wasn't happy sure there's a lot of games he took me out of that i felt that i could still get people out Mm -hmm. uh and back then, they didn't take you out because of pitch count. They took you out because they felt like you might be getting tired or something. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Let, another always, question. I never threw hard. And, right. Uh, I had my A, my B plan. When my A plan started failing, I knew I could get him out with my B plan. But Sparky <laughs> didn't let me go to my B plan very often. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask another question about Sparky. And I think it gets asked a little more nowadays because we're seeing the influx of of young general managers that never played and managers that maybe were just, you know, minor league guys. Sparky never really – I'm pretty sure he didn't play in the majors. Uh, Oh, look that up. I think he did. And if he did, it wasn't, wasn't, you know, he didn't have like a superstar career or anything like that. Did that make it harder for you pitchers to – I don't want to, I think respect's a too strong of a word, but to really, you know, I guess that's what I'm saying is to respect him when he came out to to lift you, you maybe in the back of your mind you thought, 
this guy never, you know, really made anything no, out of his never, playing career. That never, no, that never crossed my mind. You know, you're either a good manager, Walter Austin never played in the big leagues. There's mm-hmm. a lot of guys. Uh, you know, Tommy Lasorda never played in the big leagues. There's a lot of guys uh, that never played in the big leagues. One of the best pitching coaches I ever had was a guy by the name of Lefty Phillips and Larry Shepard. They never played in the big leagues. So that didn't even come into my mind. I always said, though, once I found out, and I think I found it out after my career, I went to a function and somebody said, you know, Sparky uh, was a manager, but he wasn't a very good player. And I said, well, he played for quite a few years, I know, in the Dodger system. Then he says, well, look at his stats. And I, I'm almost positive of this. He showed me the stat that Sparky played with, came up with Philadelphia one year. Yeah, he did. That's absolutely correct. I have it in front of me right now. He played 152 and he games for the Phillies. 196 or something. Lifetime batting average. Mm-hmm. How, how close there if you have it up yeah, front? Two, two, 218 in 152 games in 1959 for the Phillies. 218. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's why he didn't like pitchers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's no hitter that likes pitchers uh, that hit 218. That's pretty good. Uh, so, you know, I hopefully he had he was a good fielder. You know, uh, mm. but uh, 218, especially back then, didn't make it. You know, uh, all right. Nowadays, if you hit 218, you could make three dollars a year. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, he he got a cup of coffee, as they say. But no, that's no. There's a lot of people to me that uh, just know the game. Jim, I was just in Detroit camp. Mm-hmm. I know. I think Jim Leland. He said his biggest dream was being a catcher in the big leagues, and he became uh, possibly a Hall of Fame manager in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But he came short of his dream because mm-hmm. he got he was the backup catcher in Double A. That's as high as he got. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and he was a great manager. You know, uh, so yeah. you don't have to be a good coach or a good manager and play in the big leagues. Now, talk a little bit about that team you played for in Cincinnati. Obviously, when during the peak years of the Big Red Machine, you were you and Don Gullett anchored that that staff. You averaged 222 innings a season during those peak years. What was it like pitching on that team? And tell me a little bit about what it was like being in that clubhouse. Well, the clubhouse was unbelievable. I mean, fun, fun. They made it fun. Superstars were the main actors or main participants in the clubhouse. They would be mm-hmm. on each other, joking with each other. And uh, the rest of the guys, if we got down, couldn't get down in that clubhouse. I tell the story where I gave up a home run one game, and uh, 
I went up the clubhouse. I'm sure I lost the game. And I'm my locker feeling sorry for myself. Tony says, uh, knowing him, you know, what's the problem? And I said, well, I don't feel very good about losing the ball game. And there, uh, you're going to lose a lot. You know? <laughs> and he says, by the way, show me how you held that fastball that the guy hit 400 feet. You know, and he started laughing. Ha, 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 ha. But uh, you couldn't. You know, they were on you all the time. And you knew you couldn't get down in that clubhouse because we never we never lost a long streak. You know, mm-hmm. we always were up. If we got beat, we knew we were coming back the next day and, and usually beat them uh, or win the ball game. Uh, I came from Houston. I was 10 and 15 my last year in Houston, and I lost seven games, two to one. Mm. What do you think happened to me when I came to Cincinnati? <laughs> you won those games. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> you know, I started off slow, uh, and I was pitching okay. Started off slow. I think I was 0 and 5, and you know, all the fans really appreciated me. You know, they just gave away. Lee May, who was the MVP of the team that mm-hmm. year before, and Tommy Helms, who's a favorite, and Jimmy Stewart, who was a great guy. And I'm 0-5, and we're losing in 72. I heard a few boos and go back to Houston. Uh, but it was like it took uh, the team about six weeks to start clicking. You know, they mm-hmm. it's like a family. You know, you, you just – you get three or four new guys in the clubhouse, it takes a while for everybody to just, sure. you know, click. And mm-hmm. it seems like after about six weeks, boom. And then we win it in 72. Unfortunately, we lose to Oakland in the World Series. But mm-hmm. it was just fun. I mean, to walk in the clubhouse, to walk there before a game that I'm starting, knowing that if I can keep the team in the game, going into sixth or seventh inning, we're going to win it. We're just going to win it. You know, we're that good. We're, we're going to score runs. Uh, there was plenty of times where they didn't score runs, but sure. more than likely we were going to score runs. And you good had the confidence. Beats good hitting. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Seaver, Carlton, guys like that. That was tough. Gibson, yeah. you weren't going to score a whole lot of runs off those guys. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but that's one of the thing. That's one of the things that when you when you hear these the guys that, that that played on the big red machine or even the fans and Marty says it all the time when he's talking about the, that team is what you just said. It's it's amazing how collectively you guys just knew that you were probably going to win. And if you didn't win on in at the you know, at the end of the sixth inning you're down, you know, four to one or whatever. You guys knew it. You had the confidence. And I think that that's what amazes me about you guys is that all of you guys believed in yourselves, and I think that was, you know, one of the the first things about a great team is is the confidence to to know that you're going to win or at least have a pretty good chance going into it. Well, the best part about it is we knew we were going to win. We knew we were good, but the other team did too. <laughs> Even though they might be ahead of us two runs yeah. or one run going in the late game. There's and well, it's going to happen sooner or later. You know, they're good. They're good. You know, let's try to stay as long as we can. And it's like sometimes some of the weaker teams, it was they were waiting just for us to come back and and beat them. They knew they were going to get beat. You know, which is fun to play on a team like that. 
because yeah. uh, I played on Houston and uh, the first year or two I played there, like I said, my last year, we were starting to come together. But it was just like we went out there. You, know, you kind of get used to losing. You don't yeah. know how to win. Right. And uh, that's just the feel we had. Uh, but uh, that was the feel uh, in Cincinnati. We knew we were going to win. We knew we were good. Uh, you know, we knew that we were going to lose sometimes. I've never been on a baseball team that didn't lose ball games. You know, yeah. uh, but uh, you weren't going to lose as many. You weren't going to lose. Do you feel like but, the the pitching staff got a little overshadowed by the 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 grade eight? Uh, that's kind of the question that uh, I get asked all the time, and I ask that because you know we did. Mm-hmm. You know, most people know that we did. Uh, yeah. If you're a baseball person, it doesn't take that much to realize. Absolutely. You know, you're talking about Gary Nolan, Freddie Norman, Jack Billingham. You know, we traded Mike Caldwell to Milwaukee. He wins a lot of ball games. Traded Ross Grinsley. Uh, no, Milwaukee. Then Caldwell went to Milwaukee. Grinsley went to Baltimore. We had a lot of good pitchers. Had a lot of good pitchers. And you mm-hmm. go with the bullpen. Pedro Bourbon, who could pitch every day. Ted Clay Carroll could pitch almost all day. When we I first got there, uh, Tommy, Tom Hall. You know, and then you come in with Raleigh Eastwick, Will McEnany. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> you know, those are good pitchers. Mm-hmm. They went other places. Tommy Hume was a rookie coming up. Mm-hmm. Tom Carroll was a rookie coming up. Uh, they had, we had good pitching. We had very good pitching. Uh, so, and speaking about pitching, we had backup guys uh, in the infield, utility players. You know, you look at a Doug Flynn, he goes to New York and wins a gold glove. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at Daryl Cheney, he goes to Atlanta, plays shortstop for Atlanta. You look at Bill Plummer, he goes to Seattle and is her number one catcher in Seattle. Mm-hmm. You know, so this was a team not only that was great on the field, the Big Eight, they had 25 guys that could play the ball, play the game well and knew how to play the game. Mm-hmm. You got some advice from Roberto Clemente one year, right? Yes, I did. Not too many people know these things. Where'd you get this stuff? (laughs) What did he tell you? Well, it was my second year, I want to say, in the big leagues. And I had, I played in Nicaragua, Dominican Republic, uh, Venezuela. When I played in Dominican, my outfield was made up of Felipe Alou, Jesus Alou, and Matty Alou. And Matty played in Pittsburgh. So I'd always talk to him when I came into town and I got to know Roberto through Matty, mm-hmm. Mateo, and uh, we're in Houston one night, and uh, I come in relief against Pittsburgh, and I just get uh, just get the living hell kicked out of me, you know, <laughs> home runs, mm-hmm. base hits, I'm picking, picking behind in the couch, got to come in with a fastball, boom, boom, you know, so I'm in the outfield the next day getting ready to do my sprints and my exercise. And I heard this, hey, kid. And I'm kind of looking around, hey, kid. And I look over, and it's Roberto Clemente. And he says, come here. So I'm going, Roberto Clemente, damn. (laughs) You know, he wants to talk to me. You know, I've met him a few times through 
He says, uh, let me tell you something. He says, you got too good at stuff to pitch like that. He says, go right after us. Don't pick, pick, pick. When you pick, 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 you go into an obvious pitch situation. And we know what's coming, and we can hit it when we know it's coming. You got too good at stuff. If you put a question mark in our head, you can get anybody up. And I'm going, wow. You know, <laughs> the opposing guy is telling yeah. me this. You know, Roberto Clemente on top of it. <laughs> so just little things like that through my career. You know, I listened, and it was a big boost. I mean, that was a big, big boost for me. I'm sure, uh, yeah. You know, I, uh, sometimes you're, you're not real sure of yourself sometimes, and mm -hmm. I think in that everywhere. You know, if you're not real sure of yourself, you're not confident in yourself, you're not going to succeed. And then after Roberto Clemente told me, hey, kid, you got too good of stuff. Do you stay ahead in the count? Stay away from the obvious pitch situation? You know, hitters will get themselves out. Wow, that's that's great. That's a that's something you'll always be able to tell your grandkids. Oh, I tell that. I told his son <laughs> that. I was up at yeah. the All Star game this year. Met his son. Yeah, oh yeah. I told I told his son. I said, you know, your dad <laughs> called me over one time, and I told him the story. <laughs> I said how much he meant to me. Oh wow, that's yeah. fantastic. I'm sure he appreciated that as well. So he sounded like he did. You know, I'm sure he, <laughs> his dad was a good man. And yep. I'm sure he's heard mm -hmm. good stories all of his life about him. Mm -hmm. Going back to the Reds for a second, I think one of the years I think that you know that gets kind of overlooked and some a season that I'm sure you're very proud of was that 1973 season when you guys were 11 games out for fourth place at the end of June. Of course, Hal King hits one of the most dramatic home runs in Reds history <laughs> when bottom of the ninth off Don Sutton. He connects on a, a two-out, two-strike pitch, and after that, it turned your season around. You guys eventually would go on to to beat the Dodgers but I think what what unofficially clinched that season was your uh was your bases loaded double against the Dodgers in September of that season it completed a seven to three win and it gave you guys a five game lead over the Dodgers with 16 left to play do you remember the double that you hit uh well no I hit so many of them I can't quite remember <laughs> that one yeah. Yes, I remember that. I, mean, uh, I, I wasn't sure if I picked up on the I sarcasm. Well, and you know, to me, it was a big game. You know, if we would have lost that game, it, it was three out instead of five out. When you're five out, that sounds a lot better than three. Sure. Uh, but I came up, and uh, I remember going up the plate, and uh, I'm thinking at Claude Osteen's pitching. And I did hit left-handers better than right-handers. If you were a right-hander threw, threw me a curve, I would back out of the batter's box. <laughs> you know, I always thought I couldn't see the spin of the ball, so mm -hmm. I always thought that ball was maybe going to hit me, and then it would break over the plate. But a left-hander, the ball's coming into you. And he hung a slider, I want to say. And I always hit the right field. The Dodgers knew I hit the right field. Mm -hmm. And I hit a... I want to call it, it was a screamer line drive, but I don't think it was quite that. <laughs> I hit a ball to the left left center, more towards center, mm -hmm. and uh, Willie Davis was pulling me, playing me to hit the right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hit it good, and the bases were loaded. There had to be two outs. Uh, that's why the runners were running, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but, yes, it went in the gap. 
I slid into second base, stood up, and everybody was going crazy in the stands. <laughs> and Joe Nuxall, and I want to say Marty at the time, uh, had bets on pitchers <laughs> who was going to hit most, get the most hits, hit for the highest average. And Nuxall had me. And he had announced it on radio at the time. And he was standing up, waving and everything else. And I thought everybody was standing up and yelling for me. But I turn around, they're all looking at Nuxall. I'm standing on second base saying, oh, that was great, Jack. And nobody cared about Jack. They cared about Nuxall screaming and yelling. So, uh, but, no, I remember that well. Yeah. And I remember also in the newspaper the next day, uh, Osteen said something to Willie Davis about how can you play him like that? And uh, Willie got mad at Osteen and said something about how can you throw him a hanging curveball? And it caused some ruckus, ruckus ah. in, the, in the clubhouse. Uh, but it was always good to, you know, I still have a little bit of Dodger blue in me, as they say. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it was always good to, uh, to beat them. You always yeah. wanted to do well against them, right? You know, so uh, so it was uh, it was fun beating the Dodgers, and that I was bet. I remember that well. Yeah. I think I had two or three doubles in my career, so you remember. <laughs> sure, all you, of them. You, you never. That was, you that never... was a big double. That was a big three Absolutely. RBIs is probably more than I ever had in a year. <laughs> yeah. You know, you never got that home run, but you did your first hit came off a Hall of Famer. Can you tell us that story? No. My first hit in the big leagues? Yeah, yeah. Your first came hit off was a off a Hall of Famer? A Fergie Jenkins. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't tell you the story because I don't remember <laughs> it. But it, it was at <laughs> Wrigley Field. You hit a little, uh, I think it, the way it was described, you hit a almost like a Texas leaguer. It was your first hit on in August of 1969 when you were with Houston. Okay. It was the fir- so first was game my... of a doubleheader. Okay, I must have started that game then. It was the first game of a doubleheader. Yeah. It had to be a little blooper over into the right <laughs> field area. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's uh, a screamer in the that, box but score. I do tell people that I've got – I think i got base hits off everybody, all Hall of Famers, you know, Tom Seaver, uh, Steve Carlton, Nolan Ryan. Fergie they Jenkins. all were to right field. And <laughs> I, my theory was I always swung. I didn't <laughs> stand up there, you know, so there's a chance the ball might hit the bat. Now, you're the guy that also gave up the the home run for Hank's 714th home run in 1974. Probably at the time you weren't thrilled about it, but you got to look back on it now as, as something kind of neat. Well, it is neat, and yeah. I have no problem giving it up. He was a, to me, Hank Aaron was a class act, and I got a couple of telephone calls when Bonds was going to break his record. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't appreciate Bonds. I mean, he's, you know, he gets home runs. He's supposed to be a steroid guy. But I, what I don't appreciate it is the, the steroid part and uh, what he does after he hits a home run. Mm-hmm. You know, he stands there, flips his bat, and watches the ball go out of the ballpark. Hank Aaron, I'm almost positive I didn't watch him. I was worried more about the ball going over the fence than the way he was running. But mm-hmm. we respected each other. We didn't try to show each other up on the field. He hit a home run off me. He ran, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And he hit the home run and ran around the bases. 
and he didn't show me up, didn't show anything up. He hit, I think he hit about seven off of me, and uh, he hit one off of me late in the season before, and I was being interviewed, and somebody said, are you going to just groove one to him uh, if it's got a chance to be 714 or 715? And I said, you don't have to groove on to Hank Aaron. He's going <laughs> to hit home runs, you know. <laughs> and there again, uh, there was two men on. I was behind in the count, which means he knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. But I had to challenge him. It's a round ball and a round bat. And, you know, he's not going to hit a home run every time. He's going to miss the pitch, ground out, pop up, hit it hard to somebody. I got people out there with gloves. Yep. But unfortunately, he swung and he hit it right on the nail and hit the line drive over the left field fence. Mm-hmm. And I think the worst part about that is standing out there on the mound, Vice President Ford was there, all <laughs> kinds of Jackie Robinson was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a 20-minute ceremony. <laughs> and I had to stand there and watch it on the field, and I'm first inning, I'm down three to nothing. So that's not yeah. the best feeling in the world. Sure. But, uh, and it's cold, I'm sure, right? Opening day. It wasn't that. I don't think it was that cold. Okay. Okay. But I can't remember uh, yeah. the weather. Once once you get your adrenaline going, once you start pitching, the cold really doesn't bother you. Sure. You know, sure. Uh, pitchers are lucky in that way that we're always moving. If you're staying in the outfield and you're mm-hmm. not moving much, uh, it can get real cold out there. Yeah, but it's when you're when you're pitching and you're moving and you're not necessarily sweating in cold weather, but you, you don't you don't feel the cold as much. But uh, but no, I talk about that. People tell me that all the time. How'd you feel? Well, I didn't feel real good, but <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it's it's not like uh, it's not like some young kid. You know, he yeah. hit he hit what. Uh, 514, 514. Uh, he had ended up hitting how many did he hit? So he was 755. 714, yeah. 714, I mean, yeah. 755. So yeah. he had more off time Drysdale, I think, than he hit anybody. <laughs> yeah, and he's a Hall of Famer. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. So, no, we won the game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know that? Did you mention that? You won the game. <laughs> You won the I game, didn't win Jack. The game. I was out in the fourth. <laughs> Your <thing>. team won <laughs> the game. <laughs> the team won the game, and that was the most important thing. You know, my team got me off the hook for a loss, <laughs> and we came back and won the game, which was what it was all about. Uh, so that's the that's the main thing. When you're behind, yeah. I think we were behind three runs in the first inning. We came back and won the game. If mm-hmm. I was with Houston, we're down three runs in the first inning. I can almost chalk up a loss because yeah. we're not going to come back. So that was the difference in playing for the Big Red Machine. And the sure. clubhouse, the clubhouse. I mean, the clubhouse mm-hmm. was the best clubhouse I'd ever been in. Uh, just the way guys got together. You know, it doesn't mean we didn't have our problems. You got 25 guys living together for six months. Yeah, sure. You're going to have your differences. but of course. Uh, but no, it was great. It was great. And the, uh, the big thing that helped, too, is the coaches. I mean, mm-hmm. George Sugar, uh, we had Russ Nixon at times, mm-hmm. Lizinski, uh, you know, Alex Gramis was there. 
you know, we had the whole combination, the whole everything just mixed in perfectly. I mean, the extra players, Trigger took care of them, Larry Shepard took care of the pitchers, mm-hmm. and uh, Klazuski took care of the hitters, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody asked me about Klazuski at one time, and I don't know 100%. I heard that Klazuski didn't necessarily try to coach you so much unless you needed it. If you went mm-hmm. to him, he coached you. But he didn't try to overcoach. He didn't yeah. try to come and, you know, teach you he used to hit or anything. You know, he he looked at you and he saw your best swing. And when you came to him, he tried to get it back to that. Mm-hmm. But we had some great athletes. They did a whole lot of help. Yeah. But it, I think- it's all... It's all a mind, too, you know. Yeah, sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, Shep was good. He knew me. He knew how to get on my butt, make me work <laughs> harder. Uh, you know, he was. He would yell at you, but you knew the yelling was because he loved you, not because he was trying to bust your butt and sure, yeah. uh, tear you down. He was trying to help you, you know. So uh, it was just a cool, cool all-around situation. I think Very one fortunate. Of the th- I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. Don Clendenin, again, comes through for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one of the most unusual things that that really shows a difference between nowadays compared to as early or as late as the 70s was, I mean, you're, the, you're, you're starting opening day in 1974. You're pitching for one of the best teams in baseball, if not the best team in baseball. And you still had to work in the off season, right? Like to make a few bucks? Well, I didn't work that much when I got up to Cincinnati. I worked one winter at, uh, I want to say it was Glenway, Chrysler, Plymouth. Mm-hmm. I had a town and tree that I bought through my wife's uncle out of New York. It was too big a car and too nice a car for my wife and I, but he gave us a good deal on it, so we bought it. And uh, I used to go in there for service, and the manager and the owner, and I can't remember his name right now, said, how would you like to come work for us? So I was the consumer's manager, which uh, I grew up in a gas station. I knew how to change the oil and check the tires and check the oil and wash the windshield but i was not a consumer service manager whatever that meant uh but the main thing was they'd come in for service i would meet the people out there get service i'd go in there and buy them a cup of coffee and just bull you know and yeah, half sure. of them knew who jack billingham was and didn't uh but i time just talking to the people i said i'm not going to work all the time I got kids going to school. He says, well, yeah. come in after they go to school, and you can leave about 1, 2 o'clock. So I did that for about two months, uh, and then I started thinking about trying to get in shape and going down the clubhouse <laughs> and playing catch with Gary Nolan and things, and uh, I went in. I talked to him. But I had a good time meeting people. Then I'd call them up a week later and say, how was our service? And how do you like this and that? You know, it was By the like way, a, I'm Jack Billingham. <laughs> no, no well, like I said, some of them knew, some of them didn't. Yeah. You know, uh, so, but it, it was. Uh, but when I was coming up in the minor leagues, definitely. That's why I played in Nicaragua and Venezuela, Dominican. 
you can make more money down there than you can make in the, in the States final league ball. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you did anything you could to survive. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, absolutely. You and you don't make much money, or you didn't make much money in the minor leagues back then. So you had to do something. But I was a good fuel oil truck driver. I could go <laughs> in anywhere when I came home after the season. I had a reputation in Orlando. Jack, Jack can pump some fuel. <laughs> <laughs> he can throw some gas, and he can pump some yeah. fuel. Well, I didn't throw gas. You never saw me. <laughs> I took a sinker ball pitcher. Gullet yeah. was gas thrower. I was a sinker ball. Yeah. Hey, what was it like pitching the bench? Excellent, excellent. I was very fortunate. Uh, my, my rookie year, I pitched to a guy by the name of Tom Haller. He had spent 10 years with Samsco and whatever. Uh, he was against I came up. I didn't even know half the players I was pitching against. Uh, and I'll tell you a story in a second about that. But I wasn't a big raw-raw baseball person. I love baseball. I love to play it. But I've never been from Florida. I never had a favorite team. You know, you mm-hmm. heard of Mickey Mantle. Uh, but uh, but he was... You could throw anything he did. You could throw on the butt of dirt when you're ahead in the count. Uh, you knew he was going to block it. Uh, you could stand out there with a man on first base. And they didn't think so much of stealing and times at home and everything then. But people didn't steal against me. It wasn't that they didn't steal against me. They didn't steal against Johnny Bench mm-hmm. because he had a great arm. You know, right. if they got a good jump off me, Johnny could make it up with his arm. So mm-hmm. you didn't have, you know, Lou Brock. You know, uh, he'd, he'd steal a base off me every once in a while. But if I could... Uh, Gave Johnny a shot at throwing him out. He wouldn't steal. He knew that Johnny's arm would catch up to him. Mm-hmm. You know, the baseball goes faster than the legs. You know, uh, so yep. if you got a good jump, Johnny's arm would pick. But Johnny and I worked together. I pitched Tom Haller, John Edwards, who pitched caught for the Reds. Actually, I think he caught some of Jim Maloney's no hitters. Uh, mm-hmm. He was in in uh, Houston. So I learned the hitters through them, yeah. you know, how to pitch to them. And then by the time I got to Cincinnati, Johnny was two or three years, I think, in the big leagues, and so was I. And uh, we worked very together. You know, mm-hmm. I knew what I wanted to do. I very seldom shot, uh, shook them off. Uh, I only had a fastball and a curveball, so you know, he was he was right. You know, he, you know, the goalie could be wrong 50% of the time with two pitches, you know. And we never shook off. I kind of just took a little extra stare and he had changed the signs. But no, no, uh, we worked very well together. Uh, he just, he could receive the ball. He was a big person back there. Mm-hmm. But he just uh, received the ball well. They uh, framed the ball well. There's phrases of the baseball players. A lot of catchers will catch the ball and kind of pull it out of the strike zone. He would catch it and kind of frame it into the strike zone. Mm. He would get pitches for me just by the way he received the ball. <laughs> uh, he was great. I think yeah. everybody in the world knows he's great. Uh, sure. He was fun to throw to. Uh, and I want to say that I was, I felt like I was pretty easy to catch, too. I wasn't a real gun going hard, through hard. 
I was pretty consistent where my pitches were going to be. When he called a pitch a certain place, it was going to be somewhere in that area. So it was easy for him to catch. And I think that helped him at the plate. Uh, but he was more relaxed at the plate because I was easier to catch than some guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he always hit well for me when I pitched. <laughs> he always hit he, he hit quite a few home runs, and I think his average was pretty high. When 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 he caught you, right? Of course. Yeah, when he caught me. <laughs> well, when he caught everybody, he, he had pretty good years. I think he did when he was. I think if you look at his average when I pitched or home runs, I think he probably more home runs might have hit a little, little bit higher on average when I pitched than some of the other guys. Yeah, it's it's got to be a direct correlation, I would think. Yeah, and it hey, wasn't was he... like it wasn't like he was in a slump when he had caught <laughs> the other guys. You know, he was pretty uh, good all around. It, was he uh, was he catching in 1974 against the Pirates when you uh, when you plunked that batter and they, they got into that wild brawl in which Pedro no, Bobone bit somebody? <laughs> that Plummer. was Bill Plummer. Yeah, that was I remember that because Bill Plummer was kind of a uh, hard nose. He was a friend of mine, but he was hard nosed. He went out mm-hmm. there. He he would if there was a fight, he wouldn't back away from it. <laughs> and uh, I can't remember earlier in the game. Uh, it was Bruce Keeson. I want to say. Oh yeah, yep, that's it. Uh, hit a couple of our hitters, knocked them down or something. Or other. Then Sparky he talked to us and said, you know, if he comes up, nobody's on. Brush him back, more or less throw a ball in his rib cage uh, <laughs> and uh, he came up but there was a man on first base so Sparky had told Bill don't call a knockdown pitch if somebody's mm-hmm. on base well Bill calls a knockdown pitch <laughs> you know, which is the thumb you throw the thumb out Yeah. you give signs with your fingers if the thumb goes out you're brushing a guy back uh, Yeah. or rib cage if he squared around the bunt and I threw a fastball inside, which would have maybe hit him in the ribs. But because he turned around and the ball was right at his forehead. Mm. And uh, I can't, it didn't hit him in the forehead, but uh, I think it did hit him or he went down and all benches cleared. I remember Doc Ellis yelling at me, and I knew Doc from playing with him in Dominican. Mm-hmm. Why'd you throw at his head? Why'd you throw at his head? And mm-hmm. all hell broke loose. I, uh, I want to say it kind of broke up, and there was a catcher by the name of Kirkpatrick, backup mm-hmm. catcher, and he st- stepped on Sparky's toe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Andy Costco shoved him off mm-hmm. Sparky's toe, and all hell broke loose again. Mm-hmm. And there was fights everywhere, everywhere. You know? That's where Pedro bit some guy? Guy Pedro had a guy. Uh, <laughs> I want to say his name was Peterson. He had a headlock. This guy had Pedro in a headlock, was choking him, <laughs> and Pedro just couldn't get out of it. So he just opened his mouth and took a big old chunk out of the side. Of his <laughs> <pill>. <laughs> guy had to go to the hospital and get a tetanus shot. Yeah, first. yeah. Uh, but no, that was quite that was quite something. I don't think I don't think anybody really got hurt in that but it was a pretty good fight pretty good yeah ball. have you been in some good ones or is that the only one or you know there's mostly 
benches clear by the time you get out there uh, you know it's uh it's broken up mm-hmm. i remember one and i don't even know how it started but i remember my head ended up in the hole in front of the rubber the pitch was mm-hmm. uh, hank aaron and doug raider were going at it wrestling and I went over to try to break it up. Here's two big old strong guys, tall and skinny, not <laughs> as strong as them, and they both fell on me on the mound. Jeez. Oh, and it's like ten other people start coming and piling on. And oh. my head was right in front of the rubber in the hole. Yeah. And that's not a good feeling on the bottom of the pile. <laughs> and uh, something happened to my lip. I don't know. When you get into stuff like that, you don't really feel somebody punching you or falling yeah. you. But I knew mm-hmm. I wasn't very comfortable under there. <laughs> and when I came up, my lip was bleeding and my forehead was scratched. Or, But I didn't even know what happened other than I had about 1,000 pounds laying on top of me. Sure, sure. So, well, but, but j- no, uh, I hit one guy. I led the National League twice and hit bat. Yeah. And I only tried to hit one guy. When I pitched... I tried to brush guys back, get them off the plate. If they yeah, started getting too close to the plate and diving mm-hmm. out on fastballs away, I'd stand them up, as they said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ended up hitting, like I said, a 16-15, which led the National League two years. Yeah. But we were playing Atlanta when I was uh, with Houston, and it was one of those nights where I was getting beat around pretty much, and they brought me in actually just to clean up the mess that had started. We were down by like 12 to nothing against Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And this little left-handed hitter, he didn't spend much time in the big leagues. He came up, and I was 3-0 and on him, which respect back then is take the pitch. Mm-hmm. He swung, turned around, fell on the plate. <laughs> and I'm going, uh-oh. Yeah. So he gets in the batter's box, and I start a fastball behind his back, and it runs into his rib cage, <laughs> and he goes down on one knee and runs to first base. And I'm thinking, uh oh, you know, maybe we started something here. Yeah. Well, the next day, Hank Aaron says, Jack, same thing as Roberto Clemente, Jack, come over here. And I'm going, oh, hell. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> he said, uh, everybody on our dugout knew you were going to drill him. He says, you should have drilled him. He says he should never swung at a pitch. So, uh, yeah. you know, that was, was the only guy I ever tried to hit, and he showed me up. Yeah. And everybody mm-hmm. in their dugout knew he showed me up. Yeah. Only me, the team. You know, when mm-hmm. you're getting beat by 12 runs, you know, as you notice, they don't run the score up at third base. If somebody has a chance to score, sure. yeah. a yeah. lot of times they hold the runner up at third base. So they used to. I don't know what they do now. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's still... Still goes on today. Yeah, you respect the other team. You don't mm-hmm. want to kill them. Yeah. You know, if they're having a bad day, yeah. you're, you're having a good day. So just leave yeah. it as that. Mm-hmm. So. All right, Jack, we'll give you one more question. Um, we'll let you go one after this. One more question. <laughs> you've, you've been so generous with your time this morning. So I just want to let everybody know that you're very active still with the Reds. You come to camp each year to uh, instruct the pitchers for a week. You still scheduled to do that. And uh, uh, I know that you still do fantasy camp. You mentioned doing the Tigers camp. You still do Reds fantasy camp. I was privileged to be part of that one year with you, and you really made my – my time there uh, memorable you, know, you, you and your long hair <laughs> <laughs> i remember that well i remember yeah. you could play baseball though uh, you play. you've been around the game you can play you can play 
But no, I'm uh, I'm very fortunate. Since the Castellinis became owners, they include a bunch of us old timers and different things. And then I'm active in the Hall of Fame. Fortunately, I'm in the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, and mm-hmm. this year we're coming up for the Pete Rose induction. Sure. And then uh, they called me about a month or so ago. I think they're going to make a bobblehead out of Jack Billingham at the Hall of Fame. <laughs> that is you outstanding. Go Fame, you get a bobblehead. Yeah. You know? So I'm going to be up there a couple of days. And uh, I used to go to spring training with the Reds. I, they asked me this year if to go out March 10th. Jim Maloney mostly, just the two of us. Doug Flynn mm-hmm. goes out there. Uh, but uh, I told Dick Williams last year I got one grandson left in high school, mm-hmm. and he's pretty good at baseball. That's where I was last night uh, watching him pitch. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, uh, I appreciate the invitation, but I only got a couple more years watching my grandkids. Mm-hmm. Down in Florida, this is the time of year where they start. Yeah. So I said I'd rather – not meaning anything bad, I said I'd rather play, watch my grandson of play. Of course, than yeah, absolutely. The Reds right now, yeah, sure. And he understood, of course. But he did invite me back this year. But I told him the same thing. He's a junior, and he's one of the better players on the team, and mm-hmm. that's my life right now. Yeah, watching, watching the grandkids, love being of around course. here. I got only a couple of four years. Uh, hopefully, he can get us some type of scholarship and play a little bit. He's a pretty good yeah. ball player, but. Uh, year at a time, but it's the time for my grandkids. So yeah, absolutely. But they include me in a lot of things. Uh, I'm very blessed to be with the Big Red Machine because people haven't forgotten the Big Red Machine yet. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, and I was a part of it. I'm going to Grand Rapids, Michigan, at a minor league facility for the Tigers, sign autographs, and you know we do quite a few things, golf yeah. tournament stuff. So. I'm uh, you, very fortunate to see a bunch of old timers that I played <laughs> with years ago. Unfortunately, do you, do you still watch? Do you still watch the Reds on TV? I do, not on a regular basis. I don't watch uh, any of baseball on a regular basis, but I sure. pull for the Reds. Uh, yeah, I'm pulling for them to have a decent season this year. I think they've made a lot of changes, and they'll admit that they don't plan on winning any World Series. But you never know in baseball. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got friend, a friend of mine is coaching in uh, Tampa Bay, pitching coach yeah. Jim Hickey. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. year, I'm going to watch Seattle as much as possible because I coached in the Astros system for 18 years. And I had a guy like Scotty Service, his manager, Maniac, that mm-hmm. was a player when I was coaching, and then he became a manager. And he's the third base coach. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim Bogart is bench coach and I worked with him in Greenville Tennessee with the Astros mm-hmm. so I've got quite a few people out there that I'm going to be watching or watching yeah. the team going for the team so yes I do watch baseball but I don't sit down and watch it every night you know I do read the paper and see what happens every day but uh, yeah. baseball my life is grandkids right yeah now. absolutely so. But well, I've been Jack. blessed. I got a good life, and baseball still includes me in it. So, yeah, absolutely, as it should. You're a Reds Hall of Famer. You, heck of a big league pitcher for many years, and you have some great stories to tell. I, I could go on and on with you, and 
I just listened to you forever. You're, you're a great storyteller and you have a lot of experience. And uh, first and foremost, you're a good man. And I'm very happy to know you. And I'm very grateful that you agreed to come on to talk with us today. Anything to do with the Reds, I'm happy to do it. All right, Jack, Jack Billingham, thank you so much. And uh, we'll catch up with you down the line. You all have a good day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jack. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Boy, Jack is one of those guys who, as a Reds fan, I'll always treasure. He's a world-class, unassuming guy who spent his entire professional career around baseball royalty and probably fit right in the whole time. I first got to know Jack when I spent a week at Reds Fantasy Camp in 2011. He chided me about the length of my hair and always gave me a hard time about this or that. But I loved every minute of it because I knew he was kidding around with me. At least I hope he was. His stories about not only Sparky and the Big Red Machine, but also of Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente are amazing. It was a real privilege having Jack Billingham on this episode of the BOR Podcast. Thank yous go out this week to Jack Billingham, Aaron Chamberlain, the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and Museum, and my pal Lisa Braun. A very special thanks to my main man, Nick Prince, the best technical director in the world of podcasting. Without Nick, this podcast would not exist. Music this week was provided by the super talented indie rock band from Madrid, Spain called The Hines. Please pick up their new album called Leave Me Alone, which is available now on iTunes. Don't forget to join us for the Reds Hot Stove League and Better Off Red Baseball Trivia at the Holy Grail Banks on Tuesday, February 16th and Tuesday, February 23rd. The podcast will be on a bit of a hiatus for the next couple of weeks, but we'll return by the end of February with more great guests. That's all from BOR headquarters. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.